Um, when I was a kid growing up in Southern California, in Apple Valley, uh, California, that is, um, one of the things I participated in was the youth group. And um, I, I mean, if, if the church was open, I was there. I was one of those kids. And um, one of the games, we used to play a lot of games, scavenger hunts and whatnot. One of the games we used to play, I'm curious if any of you did this one, but we used to do um, Bigger and Better. Anybody ever do this game? Can I give me a little hand? About five of you. Cool. All right. So we used to do this one, and, and basically how it works is um, you would split up the youth group, and we'd all kind of get in a different van or vehicle or whatever, and we'd be given a very small and significant object like uh, a paper clip or a safety pin or something like that. And you would go door to door in the neighborhood, you know, back in the days when you could go to someone's door without fear of being shot, right? We would go, we would go to somebody's door, knock on the door, and say, hey, we're from the youth group down the street at this church, and we're playing a game called Bigger and Better. Would you give us something bigger and better than this paperclip? So basically, it was teaching the kids to panhandle is kind of what it was. <laughs> so we would go out and do that, and the first person would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, hang on, here, here, here's an ashtray, right, here. Kids kind of scandalized, oh, you know, <laughs> okay, ashtray. You go to the next place, and then they'd be like, oh, yeah, bigger and better. Uh, I got this bowling ball. And they would just kind of start moving up and up and up, and it would start getting interesting. Uh, if you got to 20, 30, 40 homes, uh, it was kind of amazing how quickly this, this would sort of accrue and, and build. And one year we did this. One of our groups, no kidding, came home with a car on a trailer. <laughs> I was telling Pastor Mark about, you might want to think about this. It's like a youth group fundraiser or something. <laughs> uh, so anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, today I'm introducing a new series that we're going to do through the summer. And the title of the series is True and Better. True and Better. So you're not going to end up with a car at the end of this series. But I hope that you come away with a true and better understanding of the scriptures and how we are to read them. So I'd like to do a quick exercise here. I'd like you to take your Bible out and open to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and I want you to open it up to Matthew and then turn one page and find that gap in between Matthew and Malachi. And then set the Bible on your lap. And just leave it open. Some of you who are on a digital Bible are looking at me like, this isn't going to work, Pastor Eric. <laughs> I know. I thought about you. You're going to have to cheat on your neighbors, okay? This is going to be a virtual experience for you or just watch what they're doing. I want you just to see that open Bible on your lap and to just kind of feel it for a moment. And I'll, I'm going to make a, starting off with a few obvious statements, hopefully moving to the more profound, but everything on your left of course, we call the Old Testament, right? Uh, some of you, for some of you, this is, could also be called the white pages, right? <laughs> because you spend most of your time in the right side of the Bible. You know, those pages are beautifully crinkled and they have writings on them and a patina of use and they're kind of worn and it's a little fatter on the right side. Then the left side of your Bible, pristine pages, there's no grime on the outside, you don't even have the gold foils not even broken yet on some of those pages, right? You have to peel them apart still. And I'm not trying to embarrass you or shame you about that. I'm just, I'm just saying a lot of us are not as comfortable in the left side of our Bible. Uh, and it's understandable. It's kind of a scary neighborhood, right? You go there and you start reading these laws. Some of them are strange. 
And you read some stories and you think, I couldn't watch that on TV. That'd be R-rated. That'd be horrible. Uh, and, and you're just not quite sure what to do with the left side uh, of your Bible. The other thing I want to remind you, though, uh, is this. Everything to the left is the Bible that Jesus had. It's the scripture that Jesus read. And when he refers to the scripture, he is referring to the left side of your Bible. And maybe you knew that. Maybe you just needed reminding. Maybe you didn't know that. That's our first point this morning. The left side of our Bible is the scripture that Jesus had. So some of the questions we want to look at here are are like this. How are we to understand the left side of our Bible? We have a New Testament. Why would we bother with the old? Hasn't it been made obsolete? Isn't it outdated? What's the relationship between the old and the new? How are we to read the old? Is it relevant for us at all? And if so, how? I think these are common questions that that, um, people often have. And thankfully, in the New Testament, Jesus gives us a hermeneutic, uh, which means a way of interpreting the left side of our Bible. Jesus says that the left side is all about him. Those are his teachings to that issue. When we tend to think about Jesus in the Bible, we tend to think right side. The Gospels, that's what they say, four witnesses of the life and ministry of Christ. Uh, The letters, the epistles, the acts of the apostles, the revelation of Jesus' second coming. We think of Jesus in the right side of our Bible. But Jesus says that the left side is all about him. And so that's what we're going to be um, exploring this summer, the left side of our Bible and how it relates to Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at several Old Testament figures and Old Testament features showing how they are ultimately meant to point us to Christ. And so the summer series is called True and Better. And so I've asked a good friend of mine um, named Tim, Timmy K, or Timmy Keller, Tim Keller, maybe that's how you know him. Uh, to share with us this morning, he's never met me, but uh, I got a little video clip from him. So, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. 
Is that a type? See, that's not typology. It's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. This is what we're embarking on uh, this summer. That's a whole sermon in itself, isn't it? That's where we're headed this summer. And um, let me also clarify what we're not doing and just to kind of help put some boundaries on this. What we are not doing is we're not reading Jesus into the text, uh, and that's what some of these, uh, some folks will try to do where they are looking for Jesus sort of in the Old Testament and they sort of turn, end up turning the Old Testament into allegory, forgetting that these are real stories written in a real time and a real place. And we're not doing that. We're not reading Jesus into the text. Rather, we are reading the text with an eye for where Jesus is or where it is pointing to him. Um, and so I, I brought a little picture, again, for those who kind of constantly pepper Jesus into the text, uh, it, it turns into something like this, like a where's Waldo, right? Except it's a where's Jesus. I'll give you five seconds to find him here. If you find him, raise your hand. I want to say, oh, you guys are quicker than first service. Yeah. So here he is, walking on the water. But that's not what we're doing. We're not just inserting and peppering the text with Jesus where he isn't. We are rather reading the text understanding that in it, God is making us ready for Jesus. And so we're looking for where the text points. And again, this hermeneutic or this interpretive key that Jesus is, is, a, is a key that Jesus has provided us himself. So I want to show this to you. If you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 5. Here we find Jesus. I'm going to give you a little context here. John chapter 5, starting at verse 37. We find Jesus having a conversation with an angry crowd of Jews. And they're particularly angry and hostile towards him for three reasons. One, because he has been healing on the Sabbath. And in their mind's eye, he is therefore breaking God's law. Two, because he's been calling calling God his father. And again, by doing so, breaking God's law in their mind. And three, by doing that, by calling God his father, he was, by implication, making himself equal with God. So all of these these things here, healing on the Sabbath, calling God his father, making himself equal with God, and their viewpoint is a consistent breaking of God's law, and so they are angry with him and so spiritual that they want to kill him. That's our backdrop here. And so Jesus, defending himself against these criticisms, actually makes a wonderful point. He says, hey, you know, basically, I'm not just standing here as, this, you know, as a self-proclaimed Messiah. He does claim that of himself, but he points out others have testified to this, to me. And he names John the Baptist as one, and then the second one that he names here is God the Father as one who has testified about him. And I thought this was kind of interesting. I'm thinking, you know, if I was going to bring an expert witness into the courtroom to testify for me, I think God would be a pretty good one to bring in, you know? 
You don't even have to swear them in, right? God, would you put your hand on the Bible? Repeat after me. You promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you, you. So help you, you. Yeah. That's a pretty good witness. That's a pretty good testimony. So this is what Jesus says in John 5, 37. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard uh, his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So you see, we're given this interpretive key by Jesus. The scriptures that Jesus had, the Old Testament, the left side of your Bible, are to be read in such a way that the reader sees the Father testifying about the Son who is going to come and in whom we have eternal life. That's the interpretive key that Jesus gives. So that's our second point. Jesus proclaimed that eternal life is not found in the scriptures themselves, but in him to whom they point. And that's really the primary way that we are to read the Old Testament according to Jesus. Let me contrast that with sort of the faulty ways that we tend to read the Old Testament. Some of the faulty ways we might tend to read them or even teach them is the same way we would read or teach Grimm's fairy tales, a story with a moral. That's sort of the faulty way. And what that ends up looking like is this. We read about David and Goliath, and then we come with the question, don't you want to be courageous like David? Or don't you want to be brilliant of speech like Abigail? Don't you want to be a man of integrity like Daniel? Don't you want to be a person of faith like Abraham? And you really don't want to be like Lot or his salty wife, right? And that's kind of how we end up teaching these Old Testament stories as like Grimm's fairy tales, stories with a moral. But that is not how Jesus tells us to understand them. Now, I want to give a little caveat here because I don't want to overstate my case. Uh, when you overstate your case, you weaken your case. A little, little nugget of wisdom I've learned from some good men here in the past. But it's not that these morals couldn't be gleaned from the text or that they're not there or that they couldn't be helpful. It's just not the main point. It's not the reason the stories are given. Morals are not the revelation of God here. Jesus is the revelation of God. The left side of the Bible, in the left side of the Bible, Jesus is being revealed, or, and I'm going to make up a word here, prevealed. <laughs> okay? That's what the left side of our Bible is doing. But when we end up taking Old Testament characters and turning them into the hero or the protagonist of the story, seeking to imitate their heroic deeds and to avoid their big mistakes, we end up taking a secondary feature of the scriptures and making it primary. And we can end up, as we see here in this passage, missing Jesus altogether in that approach. The left side of your Bible isn't a collection of stories about heroes to emulate. Jesus says it's the Father's testimony about him. You search the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
Jesus goes as far in his correction of the religious leaders here and of this angry crowd of Jews. He goes as far in his correction to say, the word of God does not dwell in you. That's an amazing thing to say from a community that was committed to the memorization of the scriptures. By age 12, most of the boys would have memorized the Torah. And and here, this is a crowd that's basically saying, Jesus, you broke this law, you broke this law, you broke this law. So they presume to know the law. This is a community steeped in the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. But to them, Jesus says, the word of God is not in you. Which shows us that it's possible to know the content of the Bible, but to miss its message and its purpose and the person to whom it points. That's our third point here. The Bible is not a collection of stories. It is one story. It is a story. The story of Jesus. So um, this correction that Jesus gives here and elsewhere protects us, protects God's people from what we might call religious, uh, religious moralism, which basically asserts that somehow mankind saves themselves. We just got to do enough good things, just more good than bad, and then we'll be fine. But the scriptures teach us that mankind is never saved by even their best acts of obedience. The only way that we're saved from our sin and from our separation from the Father is by coming and saving faith to the Son. That's how mankind is saved, um, rescued from their sin and brought into the family of God. I'll say it another way. If mankind could be saved by morals and by obedience, then it was pretty foolish of God to send his own son to die, right? It doesn't make any sense. C.S. Lewis has said it this way. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs a bit of improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. That's our default position, and that's what it looks like to respond to Jesus. Now, I want to show you that this isn't just like one spurious conversation that you know, Jesus had with an angry mob. But in another instance, in Luke 24, if you would turn there now, We pick up on a conversation that, to be frank, if there is any conversation in the history of the world that I want to eavesdrop on, this is it. I want to hear this. Uh, It'd be mind-boggling. So Luke chapter 24, verse 13. This conversation takes place on Resurrection Sunday, so appropriate that we're here again. We get to linger in this just a little bit longer. Verse 13 says this. Now that same day, again, the day of the resurrection, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their voices downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? Uh, What things, he asked. I love Jesus playing coy there. Playing dumb. What? I don't know. Do tell, right? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. 
In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now hear hear this point. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures, left side, all of the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they, re- or they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This is our fourth point. The law and the prophets, which proclaim many things, but primarily they proclaim or they prepare us for Jesus and for his saving work on our behalf. That's the hermeneutic of Jesus. Left side points to him. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a family uh, in the church. Some of you might remember them, uh, Ben and Suzanne Temple. Um, they were very close friends of ours. We'd been in a small group with them. Our kids were the same age. We were having babies at the same time. You get close with those people at that stage of life, and we were very close with them. We really loved them. Then they moved away, which is annoying. We hate that. And they moved down to Eugene, and I didn't like it at all. Until a couple years ago, I went down there to visit, and I realized there's world-class fly fishing around here. And <laughs> This could be a whole new strategy as we direct people to good fly fishing areas. So sometimes I go down to um, visit the fish there and a little time with Ben. But um, what we began to notice over a series of weeks was a funny thing was happening. Ben and I, who kind of look a bit alike, we're the same age, we have a similar background, we both used to have red hair, shows on our chin but not the top, and we just kind of have a lot of similar interests and whatnot. And um, we began to notice that on Sunday mornings, especially, we were dressing alike, uh, like a lot alike. And it was happening week after week, and it, it was very weird. And so, you know, this sort of built over time, like, huh, that's funny. You know, the second time, look at that again, third time. I mean, we all shop at Fred Meyer anyway, so that happens. We know that. You're like, I got that flannel at home. That happens. But so many weeks in a row, you know, it, was, it began to be weird. And then one week, this is about five or six weeks in a row of this happening, I was standing in the back here, and I, I put on a tie. And you look, there's no ties in here, and I rarely wear one. But I had on a tie that particular Sunday. And Ben Temple walks in the back door, and head to toe were dressed alike, and he's wearing a tie, a tie the same color as mine. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, are you kidding me? And he gets irritated, and he rips off his tie. He goes, I can't believe this. He rips it off, and he bolts out the door into the, into the lobby out here. And I'm kind of distracted by all this. I get up to preach, and I'm still, still in the back of my mind. This is the strangest thing. So I go out there, and he's out here talking to Amy in the foyer. And I walk up to him. I'm like, I can't believe this. What's going on here? And he says, well, maybe if I didn't call your wife every Sunday morning to ask what you were wearing, this wouldn't happen so much. 
And I was like, you, this morning, and, and oh, you know, like you turkeys, it just kind of kept hitting me in waves. How long? These two had conspired against me to get me and got me good. I had to like rethink the last six weeks of my life to interpret things. I think that same phenomenon is happening here with the disciples. They're walking with Jesus, and he begins to tell them, beginning with Moses and the prophets, how all of the scriptures left side point to him. And I think it's got to be hitting him in waves, right? You mean, and, the, and about, oh, oh. And they, and they give us this wonderful description of what this felt like. We're not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us and opened the scriptures to us. They knew the content, but now they knew the purpose and they knew the person to whom they pointed. Uh, the greatest story ever told. This is, the t- this is Edmund Clowney. The greatest story ever told. This title has been used for the Bible and with good reason. The Bible is the greatest storybook, not because it's full of wonderful stories, but because it tells one great story, the story of Jesus. So that's an introduction to our True and Better uh, series next week, True and Better Adam, and we'll get into it. So let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for the revelation that we have and the way that you have revealed yourself and, uh, again, with my made-up word, prevealed Jesus to us. I pray, Lord, that we would delight in going to the left side of our Bible. I pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds, and open the scriptures that we would not just know its content or its, um, not, know, not just its content, but, Lord, that we would know the person to whom it points. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.